0: Hello, my dear friends. This is a very interesting podcast that I have for you today. I was actually interviewed on my friend Dan Coleman's podcast, his incredible podcast that i have talked about in the past, the Shema podcast, the podcast for the perplexed. Dan is a dear personal friend of mine. He's also the president of our board at Torch. And he reached out to me and said, he said to me, Rabbi, I want to interview you on my podcast. I said, great, what are we talking about? He said, we're talking about the phenomenon of people saying, I'm a good person, and therefore I don't need to do I said, that's fascinating. Let's do it. So we sat down. It was a little bit before Yom Kippur, so it's been a couple of weeks already. We sat down in his office, and we had what I thought was a great, interesting, and stimulating conversation. I know that some of y'all subscribe to his podcast. I would imagine that some of y'all have already listened to it, but I asked him if he would mind if I would share that discussion on our podcast. And he said, no problem. So here it is, the discussion with Dan Coleman on the question of I am a good person. Is that enough? As always, we address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com. Rabbi, so good to have you back again on the Shema podcast. I, whenever I'm in your office, I feel 10% more intelligent, 20% happier. I love the Little nets that you have over here. This chair is so comfortable. If I had such an office, my podcast would be way better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, when you have my level of limited IQ, then you try to uh, <laughs> do, do other <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I just surround myself with books, so I feel smarter, even if I don't understand them.
0: Well, I, I think they—that's uh, clinically proven—that just being around books, you know, the books that you don't read are the ones that are more important than the ones you've read, because those are your aspirations. That's
1: true. Good point. Excellent.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you back on
1: the podcast king, my rabbi who taught me everything, who led me along the way. I'm so indebted to you, always. So you heard my intro. My theme here is I heard that I've heard this so much. I can't tell you. People say this to me, but I'm a good person. And it's just it's missing the point to me of life and their purpose here.
0: So you come to someone and say, Hey, you gotta keep Shabbos, you gotta study Torah, you gotta work filling. And he says, Dan, stop driving me crazy. I'm a good person. Don't you know I'm a good person? Why are you making my life worse? Is exactly. tell you? Yeah, exactly. So you want to know what the response is? Yeah. Well, what do you tell them? I tell them what I said in the intro.
1: I go, you are a good person, but you're missing out on what the real purpose of life is. Mm-hmm. And that is is bridging and creating this relationship with the Almighty. in the only time of your existence where you have this finite Max 120 years to have the freedom to reciprocate and, and do these things. And if you don't understand why you keep Shabbos, that's even
0: better. Because you're doing it altruistically. You're doing it. Yes, exactly. And how does that go over? Not well. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Is it because it's not logically sound?
1: I don't know. I'm not <laughs> persuasive. <laughs> Did it work for you? For me, that was my driving motivation. Because I, I started off reading things like Ram Chal and I started learning about the construct and I was so just almost in tears learning about in those early days why God created the world and what he's trying to do that all I wanted to do was figure out what the mitzvot were and how to do them. I mean, so that's, that's what drove my motivation. Mm-hmm. That's why I think that top down approach, even though it's not sort of the, the structure that you'd probably get in Yeshiva, it did help me because then I just wanted to figure out what I could do for the Almighty.
0: Well, in Yeshiva, we're just brainwashed. Don't you know? We're brainwashed. <laughs> we're indoctrinated. We have no choice. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? A little kid from day one, they indoctrinate them. Brainwashed. Strabbing, scrubbing. But you always <laughs> say...
1: Brainwashing is a good that you're going to get brainwashed either way. Everyone's brainwashed. Exactly. It's whether it's coming from the from the
0: Almighty or from uh, CNN and Fox News and right social media, media, Facebook, social media, TikTok, yeah. the overlords in China. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: So if you, you have to, either you're getting brainwashed on default, you're not choosing how you're being brainwashed, or at least, yeah, let the Almighty brainwash you.
0: I, you know what? I obsess over this question, and it's it's a terrifying question for me. So I'm fortunate that I grew up in a Torah observant family with good parents in a you know a good healthy environment in a community of people that are very sensitive to Torah. I had the great privilege and honor to go to yeshiva, and there are a lot of people my age or kind of my generation were millennials. We're millennials, <laughs> the worst. <laughs> I'm uh, 34, but I think I'm still qualified as a millennial. So. I always think about this question. What would have happened if I was born a couple of zip codes over to a Jewish family? But I wasn't indoctrinated and brainwashed. And I probably would have grown up like all my other peers, right? So they would send you to the one send you to a Jewish school, maybe they would send you to Jewish Sunday school or whatever, not the yeshiva certainly. And then you would go to school maybe and maybe you would go to university and maybe grad school. And then some guy with funny beard and payas and sidelocks and strings coming out of them and something like someone would say, "Oh, here's some tefillin," or "Here's study Torah," or "Don't you realize that the, the mitzvos?" And I always think about this question: like, I don't think that would any any of them would convince me. I don't think I would be convinced. To me, that's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing when I'm putting myself in someone else's shoes, who has a different perspective than I have, and to think what would it take for me, knowing what I know now. How could I impart what I know in the event that me myself was the recipient of that and I didn't know that? And to me, that's that's like the most critical question that I ponder about. Well, you know, you, you told
1: me something early on that sort of led to the me starting the small podcast. And it was the tactic that Abraham used. He didn't debate individuals. He debated and, and discussed ideas in a public forum. Mm-hmm. But then, just treated each individual with the utmost love and kindness, and welcoming them, and no, no judgment.
0: He didn't want to trigger cognitive dissonance and and confirmation bias. And everyone's sure, every person walking this planet is sure. I don't know every person, almost everyone of this in this planet is sure that their version of reality is the right one, right. And their version of politics and news and history and what's true, what's not, and what's real, what's legitimate, what's not—they've had they have it all figured out, and everyone else is either brainwashed, they're fanatics, they're crazy, right? Right. I'm a good person. They're all nuts, right? Exactly. So, and if we were to come over to them, anyone comes over to us, and they challenge that, and that is threatened, well, then cognitive dissonance kicks in, confirmation bias kicks in. And all the logic in the world doesn't, doesn't move. Right. Exactly. You know, we talk about politics. I, I, like to think of myself as someone who is able to weigh all sides of an issue, or at least I, I, that's how I think of myself. And I feel like I don't have a political home because I don't really agree with any, any group. And it seems like the both groups, they just stick, they just stick to the talking points and to, you know, to the, the partisan points. And that's, and that's all that matters. Right. So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna address kind of the 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 most central aspect of someone's life, I'm gonna tell them, hey, you are wasting your time. You're not keeping Shabbos, you're violating the, the covenant, you're not studying Torah. And he's like, Whoa, whoa, whoa what are you attacking me? I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm a good person. Dan, I'm a good person. Why are you making my life worse? Why are you destabilizing me? That's how I think I, w- I would approach the whole subject. So I, I, let, me, let me tell you my thoughts on this on this subject. The first thing I think I would say to someone who raised the objection, I'm a good person. My sense is, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is when someone says I'm a good person, they are trying to resolve a little bit of their own dissonance. I would ask the following question, okay, you're a good person, but why does that matter? Why do you to be a good person? What's wrong with being a bad person? Right. <laughs> Did you ever try that? No, that's a great argument though. No, like tell me, what is it? Like, why is that important to be a good person? You know, if, if, if you believe like many people do, many very intelligent and very sophisticated and very educated people that you are nothing more than an evolved primate, right? Why is it important to be a good person? What's the, what's the logic behind that you're a sentient, advanced, intelligent, evolved monkey, but you're assuming you don't have a mission in life and God doesn't exist. Of course, the crazy, religious fanatics, creationists, those people are all nuts. They're all, they're all crazy. They're living, you know, centuries, uh, in, in, you know, their backwater, obsolete, arcane beliefs. They're crazy, right? That's right. what we think. That's what we would think, right? So why is it important to be a good person? The whole notion of saying I'm good enough. I need to be good. Then I acknowledge I need to be a good person, but I already am a good person. Why do you need to be a good person? Why?
1: Well, I'll tell you the answer. Okay. The answer is, is that the people I know I had this conversation with do believe in God. They, a version of God that created the world, maybe not one that's controlling all circumstances and deeply involved in our life, but they believe in God. They believe that there is probably reward and punishment. But in the end, what God cares about is that we are a good people in the way we interact with each other. Which is why they can't reconcile what I have to
0: study Torah, what I have to vote. Interesting. That's an interesting theological architecture. Yeah. That they believe in God completely, real. And the mighty knows what we're doing. And the might going to judge us and reward us or punish us for our behavior. But you and I get to determine what's good. As long as you're good whatever that means in a in a very nebulous fashion, right? Yeah. As long as you're good and not bad, then you get the reward. Wow, that's fascinating. I think, you know, there
1: there are some people I've had this conversation with over the last, you know, eight, nine years or so, is that there are some calm denominators, integrity, being kind to people, which are mitzvot. There are definitely exactly the way Hashem wants us to act. But when they start to get into things like, learning Parsha, Torah, you know, the, the other observant areas like Shabbos and kosher and all those things, they don't understand like why would God care? And that's why I'm trying to like, get them to understand like, it's not that God cares. It's why should we care?
0: Well, I, I have a, maybe a different theory to this. I heard this from my grandfather, blessed memory, but they, they're, they're not mutually exclusive. They can both be true. We believe that every person has a soul which is this invisible but supremely powerful and spiritual force within a person. Now, every person has a different kind of soul. Every person has a different level of a soul. Every person has access to different portions of their soul. Once we get into the, the actual nature, the reality of the soul, it's a very complicated study. So I'm not saying that the most righteous person in the world and the most wicked person in the world have the identical soul within them. But every human has a soul. And that soul is frequently associated with our consciousness that if I have an opportunity to make a lot of money on someone else's account and I'll never get caught and the IRS will never find out about it and the FBI will never find out about it and that person will never find out about it, but I'll feel bad. This like internal moral compass that motivates us to do good and to be righteous and to be to have integrity and to be just and to be moral and to be upstanding—that is a reflection of our soul that we have, and therefore I have something within me. It's so deep within me, I cannot really extricate myself from it, and that is propelling me to be a good person. Then Dan comes over and says, "Hey, the definition of a good person—you gotta keep the whole Torah, I guess. Study Parsha. You gotta make sure you don't know wear is and." Tying your shoes, what? What are you talking about? Right? That is the dissonance that you're trying to resolve by saying, Well, I'm already a good person. You're trying to kind of get off the hook to assuage your consciousness by saying, I'm I'm doing enough and therefore stop bothering me. I don't want to have this feeling of emptiness, of, of feeling bad about myself, of feeling, of feeling terrible that I'm I'm not living up to the standard that I know I should be living up to. So we have a soul, and therefore we want to be good. We don't know why we want to be good, but it's not logical per se, you know. Uh, So I guess if you believe in God, but not in Torah, you know, I I find this interesting because to me, like, if you believe in God necessarily, that, that means they might create the whole world, the whole universe, a trillion species on this planet. Such complicated organisms, such a dynamic world. Right. There's got to be a purpose for it, right? So there's got to be some sort of Way that he lays out his plan, right? There's, there has to be some meaning if there is a creator, because, you know, any intelligent person wouldn't make something as sophisticated and intricate as this world unless there was a reason for it, unless there was a purpose for it, unless it fulfilled some sort of role. So to me, if I accept the principle that God exists, I should be prowling, I should be on the lookout to try to find what The goal is what's the, what's the abstract? What am I supposed to do? Where's the instructions? How can an intelligent being create something as vast and expansive and comprehensive and intricate as this whole universe? Trillions of stars and trillions of cells and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions trillions with this insane thing called a human and it'll be purposeless. Doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe that's the angle. Hey, you believe
1: in God. Why did he do it? Unless there is an ideology for what the purpose is, which is for many Jews, including me and my father and my grandfather, was that the purpose is to live a good life. Meaning you do well in school, you go to good college, you have a good profession, you raise a family, teach them to be honest and have values around those levels, honesty, voting a certain way. And then you save up enough money by being a good steward over your capital so that you can retire and then play golf. <laughs> and so that the whole reason I think I became unsettled in my late thirties is that I hate golf. So I couldn't <laughs> imagine spending you know the last 40 years of my life or 30 years or whatever Hitting a white ball around a golf course. I think that's why I started searching for something bigger. Well,
0: maybe the angle is that once some, if we were to estimate how much time does the average person in this demographic, so these are people that want to be good people, they believe in God, or at least nominally so, they they claim to believe in God, but don't want what you're selling or what I'm selling, what the Torah is selling. How much time have they pondered the question, why am I here? Why is Dan here? Why is this universe here? Why, 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 why? Who who would create something as comprehensive, as complex as this universe and not have a purpose? What's that purpose? Maybe that's the angle, just to think about that question. Because you're jumping to the conclusion. You're saying, I've done that work. I've done the lead work. I've thought it all through, and the answer is Torah. The Torah is the manual, the Almighty's complete, unabridged manual for life, for the purpose of creation, and therefore, morally, me, as a creation of God, I must obey and adhere to the instructions that he gave me, because that's what he expects of me. It means you're jumping to that conclusion. But maybe the angel to our, our dear friend and co-religionist who says, but I'm a good person, Maybe the question is, hey, why did God create the world? What are we here for? What is life all about?
1: That is a good question. Because the problem people have is there's really not time to contemplate such a thing. For one, you have sports games. You have, you got to watch your news channel to find out what's going on in politics. You got emails you got social media.
0: I mean, when is someone so spending time thinking about why God created the world? That's why the Almighty made us need showers. And because when you're a shower, you can't take your phone with you. Is that the answer?
1: Maybe that's <laughs> one solution.
0: <laughs> no, but I'll tell you the, my grandfather used to always quote the Ramchal who said that the best recipe to have a life well lived is to spend a minimum of an hour a day without any distractions, just Pondering this question. Why am I here? What am I living for? What will be after I die? What does the mind expect of me? An hour a day. I'd be shocked if any of the people that we're talking about mm-hmm. have spent an hour in their entire life thinking about this question. No, you're, you're absolutely right. So if you, you know, if you haven't thought about that question, if that question's never bothered you, Maybe it's a little bit too premature for you to say, Oh, I'm going to listen to Dan tell me how to tie my shoes and how to wear a in and all that. That's the answer. That's the answer. But, you know, you mentioned, uh, Abraham in, I think in your intro, you mentioned him unless I'm, unless, am I, um, I might, I might be hallucinating. Actually, I did in a different version. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so I am it's your ESP. Okay. So Abraham how did Abraham become the founder of monotheism? How did he discover it? So the Rambam tells us that Abraham was a ponderer. He was a truth seeker. He was someone who asked questions and followed answers down to their logical roots, to their foundation. He followed the rabbit holes of all the possibilities. And he was so determined in this process of truth seeking that ultimately if you're that determined, you'll find the answer. But maybe, you know, maybe that's, that's, that's the angle say, okay, you believe in God. You believe you're not an atheist. You believe in God. Why did God create you? Why did God create humanity? Why did God create the universe? Why did God create the world? What's the purpose? That's a great question to
1: ask. I think that's, I, I think the response is not an answer. It's,
0: that question, and if that's what Abraham used to arrive at his conclusion, that's obviously a, a, a legitimate line of questioning. It's a legitimate line of questioning, don't you think? A- absolutely. You know, the the challenge
1: though is we tend to conclude that what's normal is what the majority
0: of people in your sphere think is true or not true. So we we outsource our thinking and our decision making to to the public. Is that what you're saying? I think that by default, that is what occurs. Doesn't that happen in the financial industry as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. You're like, uh, well, everyone's going into this or everyone's buying this asset class yeah. or whatever. Yeah.
1: We call it hurting. Yeah. 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 Mob. The mob mentality. Th- there's no independent analysis. Just like this is where everyone's going. So this is where I'm going to.
0: So maybe that's the minimum expectation that God has of us. The minimum expectation is that the Almighty gave you the most the most incredible piece of technology, and that is a brain unmatched by any computer, which is capable of asking these kinds of questions. And at a minimum, if you have 70 years of life to live at least once, use the superpower, the nuclear weapon, balancing it's just balancing precariously on your shoulder. <laughs> Maybe that's the expectation. And you know what? If someone doesn't use that, then it's, it's a real shame. It's a real shame to never ask that question.
1: You know, I find that when, when situations are external, there's a lot more clarity. Like everyone I know when they were a kid and heard the story about Abraham realizing there's one God, when everyone else was worshiping these little clay figurines and, and idols, I remember everyone was just like, How could they have done that? I would have been like Abraham, too. I would have obviously recognized this is nonsense because the situation is external at that point. But when it comes down to the real question of he was he drew a conclusion that was the opposite of everyone else on the planet. Definitely not the norm. He was a total extremist. Contrarian. Total contrarian.
0: Iconoclast.
1: Yeah. But when we find ourselves in that exact same situation, it's very hard to go against... What everyone else around you is thinking and doing.
0: I think there's a lot of this inhibiting your mission and my mission to get people to think about Torah with a more open light to really expose themselves to it. I think there's a lot of this, of this kind of social norms that you and I violate. What do you mean? You don't turn your phone on on Shabbos for 25 hours. What are you a Luddite? (laughs) Right? Right. There's a lot of that you really walk around with the yarmulke on your head and your tzitzas out, like, you do that? Really? Like, you actually do that? You really won't eat food because it wasn't supervised by rabbinic uh, kashvahs, uh, right? You re- really do that? There, you know, there's a certain ridiculing of religion in, in society, and that's a bigger obstacle that needs to be addressed more than any of the theological or intellectual problems, so to speak, of what we're trying to popularize, at least expose the people to. to. When I was in my late
1: twenties, I was beginning to explore maybe the religion thing. I had this like little moment of craziness, but what I calculated was based off if the Jews are right, why are they such a small minority? You would think great ideas would become very popular. And so I didn't look at that. I was like, The Christians seem to be right because there's so many of them. So I explored that and realized, this is crazy. And then I just back back away and went back into my atheism.
0: Yeah, well, we, we have to remember. I think it's good to remember historical examples of the entire world being wrong. So you brought up the idolatry example. You know, idolatry in its most literal sense is almost extinct in this world. But we know this. This is well documented. That societies as recently as a couple thousand years ago, it it was almost universal. Like paganism was universal. And these are people that are very sophisticated. These are not fools. They're not fools. You know, the, you know, the great uh, Greek philosophers were very capable, intelligent, sophisticated, sharp, bright, much more intelligent than the public intellectuals that we have today. Yet they were all idolaters. So if you and I were using this standard this yardstick of saying hey let's just outsource all of the important decisions of our lives to the masses well then we would be idolaters in the times where that's what everyone else did we would be receptive to child sacrifice in the times where that was popular uh, murder in times where you know people were murdered for relatively minor transgressions We would sign off on that. If we are going to outsource our moral standards to, to the masses, it could bring us to pretty, you know, to what we would accept universally today to be very dark places. Right. So the fact that Jews are a small minority. Well, okay. First of all, it doesn't cause us any problems because we don't believe that Judaism is supposed to create a universal religion. Right. We're not supposed to proselytize, right? Right. You know, I always say that the Jews are, are Navy SEALs, spiritual Navy SEALs. If everyone was a Navy SEAL, then a Navy SEAL would lose its meaning, right? Right. If we are the elite, the, the spiritual elite of the Almighty in this planet, we're his representatives here. You cannot have a million ambassadors in a country. It's only when there's one or two or three or four representatives, they can represent the other party. We're the most representatives in this world. And our job is to make sure that we maintain the standards that he set for us. But ultimately, that's going to influence the entire world away from paganism and towards the acceptance of, of the belief in God. Towards, right. towards monotheism. Which, by the way, by that standard, we're doing pretty Well, did you ever wonder why Christianity is eroding, whereas Islam is not? Isn't that interesting? You know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there were, I don't know, hundreds of millions, billions of Christians and Muslims. And today, the Christians are kind of waning. Their commitment to Christianity is waning, whereas the Muslims, it's not. To me, the answer is simple. One of them is idolatry, and one of them isn't. So we're getting closer to the messianic ideal of the world re-embracing monotheism. Right, if you and I were to telegraph how we would imagine how the Torah would forecast the Messianic era happening, it would happen exactly like this the The Muslims would remain steadfast to their theological principles, whereas the Christians you know they won't go back to become pagans, but the whole uh, whole Christianity thing will be less appealing to them
1: very true. All these things are are playing out. <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about was for like my my late twenties through late thirties, I volunteered for an organization called Child Advocates, where I was a a court appointed guardian ad litem for kids in child protective service custody. One of the things I remember was I was always trying to like counsel the parents to do what they need to do so I could approve a family reunification. But I remember talking to so many parents, whether it was neglect through drug addiction or this one guy who was uh, hit his teenage daughter. And I would try to talk to him about go through the he was told he had to go through anger management classes. And I kept saying, look, man, you got to go through these. And he's like, I don't need anger management. I was like, I know what the judge wants. He's like, I don't need it. And I was like, OK, I'm just telling you that if you want the kids back, you need to go to him. He's like. And he stood up and yells like, I told you I don't need it. And if you bring it up again, I'm going to rip your effing head off your shoulders and defecate <laughs> it. And that was cleaner language. So <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep this in. <laughs> so the, the the point is, is that as I was talking to these parents, one of the things they would always, always say to me is I should have my kids back. I'm a good person always. Because from their vantage point, what they, what their kids were experiencing is what they experienced. It was their norm. And they really saw themselves as a good person and were befuddled by the fact that the state came in and took their kids away. And I remember that resonated with me, like how left our own devices, we can go so awry from what actually is being a good person.
0: Yeah. If I remember the, the seminal book, how to win friends and influence people, like that's how he starts off. Everyone thinks they're a great person. The criminals, the rapists, the murderers, they all think that they're great people. That's just maybe the human condition that we're always, we're always trying to justify our behavior. We always are able to, you know, find ways to, to render ourselves as being good. Right. So that's not a standard that we, you know, when we look at other people, we say, well, they don't actually live up to that standard, but those people themselves would apply that standard to themselves. Let me ask you this. I did see a verse. And Parsha, a few weeks back,
1: I can find it, you probably know it, where there is a verse sort of talking about Moshe warning people about saying, I don't need to follow Torah and that I'm, a, I'm good with God. Or I'm probably just ad-libbing based off the commentary of Rashi. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because
0: it's obviously that there is sort of a warning of going this route. Yeah, I, I think I think what you're referring to is the beginning of Parshas Nitzavim, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, I think it was, where we Moshe gathers the whole nation, and he gives them this warning, maybe there is a like root amongst you that is bearing bitter fruit, and there's a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart deviates away today, and they said, Shalom Yeheli, there'll be peace for me, I could do whatever I want, and I won't suffer the consequences. Right. Yeah, so that's a great example, that the notion of of people feeling or announcing, declaring that their behavior is not problematic. That goes back to times of motion. So maybe that is a great example of the fact that this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance and, and confirmation bias and people always justifying their current status and no more, that goes back to times of motion. And by the way, I have a thing that I like to tell my uh, very religious friends. <laughs> I'm really nervous. Listen to this. I tell my very religious friends, you know, isn't it, isn't it awful that there's so many Jews who don't believe in Torah and don't keep Shabbos? Isn't that awful? And they're like, yeah, it's so awful. Like, yeah, then they don't know and they don't realize how they don't. And then I say, don't you realize that you and I are like the same thing? There's just, we're just different levels of this. I right. say, hey, wait, let's look at the Talmud. What does the Talmud say about people who neglect Torah study? What does the Talmud say about that? Hmm? What does it say? It says some really, really scary stuff about people in neglect Torah study. Do you neglect Torah study? Well, do you know? Come on. Yeah. Everyone is good enough in their own minds. Right. We like to put people in buckets. So uh, this guy is religious. They are orthodox. They are observant. They know how to read Hebrew. They go to shul. They wear their film. They're good. And these other guys over there. Oh no, they're not religious enough. They're heritage. They're not non-believers. The truth is we all have to willing to challenge ourselves. That's what the money expects of us. Moshe to his very last day was challenging himself. There's never time that we can be complacent. And you and I also have this same problem. I'm a good person. You're right, Dan, you're, we're, we're like we're like patting ourselves on the back. Look at us; we get it. <laughs> it's all these other clowns out there don't get it, right? That's what we got. Right. We got together in your gorgeous office, and we said, "Okay, let's talk about all those other fools that just don't get it. They just don't get it." <laughs> but the truth is, that that's you and I right. as well. Right. We are these same people, and the only way that anyone can be moved is if they're willing to to expose themselves, and make themselves vulnerable to the possibility then maybe there's room for improvement. And I think that's that's true to me. It's true to you. I'm, I'm, this was not even my – like when we talked about speaking about this, this is not the angle that I thought we would go down. But I think there's there's something true about this. Yes. That this is not just for the people who are, quote, unquote, not religious, not observant, reform, unaffiliated, whatever it is, whatever term we want to give to them, it's for us as well. You know, I, I – I've worked filling every day. I've never knowingly, willfully violated Shabbos. Never. And so, like, I'm like, oh, I'm one of the good ones, right? I'm one of the good <laughs> ones. That's what, I, that's what I would think. But but no, like, the Almighty expects a lot more of me and of you than what we're delivering. Is that true? Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, you also
1: say you're a good person. And the, and the Yetzirah always wants us to look outward, never inward.
0: Yeah, Dan. Yeah. Come on, Dan. I'm a good person. Come on, Dan. You're a good person. I've always thought I was a good person.
1: <laughs> Even in my 20s when I was committing every sin. You know, I had my parameters. So I'm glad you made that point. Whenever someone thinks that there's something happening and it orchestrate it and they get frustrated, like I know those moments. Like why is this happening? In that moment, I tell people,
0: in those moments, I'm an atheist. Yeah. As terrifying as that sounds, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that that would be – to me, the, the opening, the opening of this whole discussion is that the only way we could have a productive conversation about this is if we're willing to actually threaten our, our cherished status quo. And that's you and that's me and that's everyone that we know. Most people don't want to go there or it's too painful. And then, okay. But that's where the discussion has to end because we, if we try to jump a step, if we try to jump a step, It's not going to work. And sometimes you see this a lot where, you know, I always like to think of of people as big buildings and it needs to have a good strong foundation. Right. And you can't really skip any steps. The Talmud says that a person who's not a landowner is not a person, which sounds, you know, very antiquated. But like, what does that mean? You're a person, but you don't have land, so you're not a person. So my grandfather used to always explain based upon a teaching from his master, from his teacher, that we have to be grounded. We can't try to jump up to heaven. We have to always build, so to speak, layer upon layer, a strong foundation and not skip any parts. So you and I know people, I definitely know a lot of people like this, who grew up without Torah, grew up without mitzvah observance, without Shabbos, and were inspired and became very observant. Some even became rabbis. And amongst that group, you have some of the most amazing people that I have ever met, just incredibly inspiring people, people who were willing to, to change, which is the most inspiring, inspiring thing in the world. And then you have people who become very religious. Oftentimes they get very visually observant and become very zealous. And then they have a relapse. They have recidivism. And drop it all. And to me, that's very sad. It's very sad because someone was brave enough to expose themselves to the beauty of Torah, but they did it or they were maybe, you know, poorly advised to do it in a way that didn't build a strong foundation and didn't build every step, every, every, every layer of that building. So, so, so a human is, is this big building. And I don't remember where I was going with this. It was back to but- the landowner. Back to the landowner, yes. So we we don't want to just catapult someone to religion. We don't want to say, oh, like this Torah is true, here's your trillin', right? Maybe, maybe there are some people who are ready for that, but people have to be willing to start from ground zero and 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 build their relationship with the Almighty at a pace that's not gonna be counterproductive, not skipping any steps, based upon kind of a good, healthy mental health, even. Yeah. Balanced and it's, it's beautiful. It really is the most beautiful thing in the world to develop relationship with the Almighty, but we can't skip those steps.
1: I agree. I mean, you, you always told me early on to take small steps. Like your first suggestion to me on Shabbos observance was just not to use my phone, which that, that one thing was so monumental to have my phone off for 25 hours but you encouraged me and you even said then i remember just do it for one week just one Shabbos. don't i don't want you to even try it for two weeks in a row you know because we're not meant to have dramatic change and you're right if it happens too fast and that's what you warned me you told me about the yetzerah you said you want to go sort of stealth make small little moves so it doesn't know you're trying to make that you're on trajectory to move further and then you can sort of build that foundation now I want to go back to one of the points I made in the intro as a motivating factor. And that is a way of reciprocating, like to God, a way of reciprocating to God. Because when people begin to focus just on the aspect of gratitude, you have your health, your eyes, you have a, you have a family and beautiful children and a, and a spouse. Look at, and you start to think about all these things the Almighty gave you. Even if you think you're the one responsible for all your money. Fine, let, let them have that, right? Whatever success you had. But just all the things that they would attribute to the Almighty and say, how, what way do we have possible to reciprocate? And in the vote, even just one of them, it's just one way of reciprocating. You know, like Shabbos, what is it? It's like a date night with your
0: spouse. It's just, Hashim, once one day would just... Us is that beautiful? Can you get in I think one it's, day? Uh, I think it's a it's a beautiful argument and uh, it's a beautiful suggestion. I'll tell you my grandfather blessed memory. He used to say this he used to say that the very first step of a person developing their spirituality is in appreciation and gratitude and stopping to feel entitled. The Yatsera, as we like to call him the force that wants to keep us small and keep us the way we are without any change, that force wants us to not, to not think and to just accept things the way they are. And the essence of gratitude and appreciation is to say, well, things could have been different. Like you said, my eyes work, I could have been blind. My hands work, right? I have a livelihood. I have a family. I have good things. I, I enjoy life. That's not something we can take for granted. That's not something I'm entitled to. The second you're entitled to nothing, everything really is, is so beautiful, and you're so lucky to have everything, and that is the flowering of of your spiritual life. It's like the first step, which is why he said the first step is to focus on blessings, because a blessing is all about appreciation. You're about to enjoy a glass of water. You're about to enjoy uh, some food. That is time for you to say, "This is a gift from the Almighty." And it's not something that I deserve per se. It's not something that is to be taken for granted. There's a lot of people that cannot enjoy this. There's a lot of times in history where this was exceedingly rare, but I have it and I want to appreciate it and I want to express my gratitude. And now you've kind of cracked a little, a little hole in that little cocoon that the eights are almost to keep you in. And you, hundred percent, I think that's that, that's a very, a very good way to, to start off this, this relationship. I had some more thoughts about, about what I would do or what I would propose to understand this or to kind of develop this, this subject. Do you want to hear them? I want to hear them for sure. sure. That's why you're here. So first of all, there is, um, there's a basic assumption of Mr. a good person or Mrs. or Miss or whatever pronoun that people want. <laughs> <laughs> We're friendly to all. Exactly. So the person who says, But I'm a good person. There's an aversion to the mitzvot, right? I don't need the mitzvot. I'm good enough. Why is there an aversion to mitzvot? Isn't that strange? If the mitzvot come from God, don't you think you should make it a little more appealing to us? Wouldn't it be easier to... you, You talked about the Jewish people being such a small minority wouldn't it be easier because assuming the thing we got it from God, right? Assuming it from God, he should make it so desirable and so seductive and so irresistible and so appealing in the eyes of everyone else that we should not have to convince anyone. They should just want to sign on.
1: Right. Exactly. I had, uh, not to lose your train of thought, but I actually had before you came over conversation with my colleagues from work. And they said, what's the holiday coming up this week? And I said, Jom Kippur. And it's like, is that a big holiday? It's like, Oh, it's the the biggest. And they said, what do you do? It's like, we deprive ourselves of food and water for 25 hours. And we spend pretty much the entire time, you know, Wednesday night and all day Thursday. And we're just going to be saying these prayers over and over again, thinking about all the mistakes we made until we end up like in tears asking for forgiveness. And then after it's all over, we sit around and we wonder why no one wants to convert to Judaism. (laughs)
0: Sounds like a real party. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to get you distracted, That's but yeah, it's, it's really funny. It's it's, it's very obvious. So, one, so, go ahead. So there's and there's an amazing Mishnah in the chapters of our fathers that describes us running. We are running. We're running and running. How so? It says we should <laughs> run towards a mitzvah, and we should run away from a sin. So run towards a mitzvah, run away from from sin. The Mishnah is counseling us to always be running. Running in pursuit of a mitzvah and running fleeing from sin. So our grandfather pointed out one of his books. He said, what this is teaching us is that a mitzvah is escaping from us. It's running away from us. A sin is chasing after us. And therefore, if we want to accomplish the mitzvah, we have to chase it down. We got to hunt it down. We got to pursue it. Run after it. Because if you don't run, forget about it. It's gone. Whereas a sin, we have to run away from it. We have to flee it because we do nothing. The sin is going to consume us. The design of the world, according to the Mishnah, is that mitzvahs should not be appealing. That's the design, and everything else is chasing us. Is appealing. You try to sell people something that seduces them not a bit the this there's no there's no appeal there's no allure there's no sizzle to what you're selling the only way for them to get it is if they chase it down whereas the sin that you're telling them to avoid that's chasing them so it's not balanced it's yeah not seem, balanced. seems unfair seems unfair so here's the answer we believe when you mentioned this earlier that there has to be free will there's free will it's like a barbell right barbell you have the weight on the right side equals the weight on the left side. Right. Balance. You and I have both tasted the beauty of mitzvahs. We've chased them down to a certain extent, you know. And and those things we found very appealing, what we've discovered is very appealing. So we're coming to someone that says, I want to be a good person. I'm, I'm, I'm a, but I'm a good person. That person has no idea about what we've experienced. If you never experienced a full Shabbos, if you've never experienced a 25-hour Yom Kippur of fasting and praying... You don't know why that would in any way be appealing. Right? That sounds like self-flagellation, <laughs> <laughs> right? What am I a masochist? So, you, so you and I are both masochists who found it to be very pleasurable. Maybe this should be rephrased, but just in the concept. Yeah. And we're trying to sell it to someone who sees it as pain because it's fleeing from him. And the only reason why that the world is designed like that is because if a mitzvah would have the same appeal as a sin. The people would do them in equal proportion because they'd be both as equally alluring to us. But the mitzvah, because it syncs up with our soul, because it feels like we've come home, because it gives us a lasting feeling of meaning, the mitzvah would be much more appealing. It means if they both have the same initial appeal and one of them gives you like a lasting good feeling because, again, it is synchronized with our soul, then no one would ever do any sin. Because if they both have the same initial attraction, but one gives you a great feeling afterwards and one doesn't, that's it. The free will is over. So the only way to have a balance is if the initial attraction of the sin outweighs that of the mitzvah. But the payoff of the mitzvah, once it's actually done, well, that exceeds that of the sin. And that way it's balanced. We got chased on the mitzvah, but once we do, we find deep meaning in it. So maybe the suggestion is to tell people this idea and say, "Hey, maybe it's worth a test drive. Try it out. Take it for a spin." These crazy Jews have been preaching this for years. Maybe it's worth just exploring. Maybe, maybe there's something there. What do you say about that? I
1: like the the the, the test drive idea. I would I wouldn't go right into Yom Kippur, but as a way of building up to that, like I think is the, the staple take it for a drive in Judaism has always been inviting someone over for Shabbos just to experience it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. But that that's maybe, maybe that's different for every person of what, what could be their, their little taste into this insane world that you and I live in. But, but the principles is, is true that if right. they actually connect with the mitzvah and it resonates within them then you know we've unleashed a monster right we've unleashed a monster because they have now tasted something they want again because it gave them a good feeling it it it, it clicked what do you say is that, is that is i that like our? it yes absolutely and then like you mentioned you mentioned this in your intro that the objective the mitzvahs are for our benefit right of course we talk about the eternal benefit but even even in this world in this world we also get the pleasure of our soul feeling content, and it's it's much it's a much more of a subtle feeling, but it's it's just as real. And the Almighty, of course, doesn't need our mitzvos. There's a there's a midrash that I I feel is apropos, germane to our subject. There is a midrash that says, "Does the Almighty actually care if I slaughter an animal from its neck or from its throat?" If you slaughter an animal. And everything's kosher kosher animal, kosher knife, kosher ritual slaughterer. But you do it from the neck, not from the throat. The animal is treif. it's not kosher. The meat's identical, can't tell the difference. One's kosher, and one is a sin, a violation of the Almighty's instruction. Says the midrash. Does the Almighty actually care if we slaughter from here or from there? So the Midrash says, Lonitna mitzvos The mitzvos were only given to us. To purify ourselves. Now, how exactly this answers the question, all the commentaries have their own way of, of defining it. But the bottom line is the mitzvahs were given for us. They were given to us for our benefit, for our betterment. And if you study the subject well enough, you'll discover it's for our benefit here as well as in the afterlife. Maybe it's worth a test drive. Maybe it's worth an exploration. Maybe that's, maybe that's the angle. I like it. You like it? I totally agree with that. Okay, let me tell you another thought I had on um, okay. this subject. Someone says, hey, I'm a good person. I'm a good person! Don't make me do all these religious, ritualistic, ceremonial mitzvahs. So I think I would phrase a response to this as follows. Let's translate this to monetary economic terms. Suppose someone is collecting unemployment checks, and they're sitting on their couch playing Xbox. Or better yet, they actually have a job and they're offered a pay raise. And someone says, hey, listen, you know, I, I could make my rent. I could even contribute to my 401k. And um, I'm up to date on my bills. And I'm not so far in debt. Why do I need a pay raise? I'm doing well enough. Of course, that would be nonsensical, right? Why would someone say, like, if you have the opportunity to make more money, why would you forego that? Is that right? Absolutely. As a licensed financial planner, would you agree if someone's told, hey, would you like a pay raise? The answer should be yes. I would recommend taking the pay raise. Thank you. So I think mitzvos are offering us a spiritual pay raise. Like why should we live with spiritual mediocrity when there is a tantalizing opportunity to have a spiritual pay raise? The money is telling us, I want your life to be better. I want your life to be improved. I want your life to be more replete with meaning, with more vitality. I want you to live for something. I want you to live for a cause. I want your life to matter. He's offering us a pay raise. We're told, the Ramam speaks about this, that the mitzvot are designed to give us immense pleasure. A pay raise. A pleasure pay raise. Why would you say no? The whole argument, I'm good enough, presupposes that this is a tax you have to pay. If I'm paying enough taxes, I don't want to pay any more taxes. That's what it presupposes. But we believe, and if you're fortunate enough to have experienced this, you know this to be true, that the mitzvahs are not a tax that you have to pay. They're a pleasure that the Almighty wants to give you. Well, if so, the whole argument doesn't make any sense. If I'm paying enough taxes, as my financial advisor, you would say, you don't need to pay more than, than you need. Then you're a fair share. Right. <laughs> you're a fair share. You don't even more than your fair share, right? Right. Why not? Because that's a liability and you want to minimize that. So you have to do the minimum needed to make sure that you're, you're good with the IRS or you, you're paying whatever it is you need to pay. But if it's a pay raise, you want it. So this question just presupposes that Mitzvahs are a liability, not an asset. And I think that what I would present to the individual who says, but I'm good enough, I would say, well, I have a very different definition of mitzvahs than you do. You view mitzvahs as taxes. I view it as income. And therefore, to me, it's more interesting and it's more exciting and it's more pleasurable when I immerse myself into this and maybe it's worthwhile to see if I'm not absolutely insane. Is it possible? Is it possible that me and Dan And millions of Jews throughout history, some of the most talented people who have ever graced this planet, all believed and lived lives where they, where they testified, so to speak, with their behavior, that this is the most pleasurable, enjoyable way to live. It's one that gives you the most meaning in this, in this world. Of course, the spiritual world, that's another argument. What do you, what's your plan for the afterlife is a good question. Hey, if the Almighty is actually going to punish you or reward you, like we believe based upon the instructions of the Torah, you might be up a creek, as they say, if you don't have Torah. But that's one argument. But even in this world, if mitzvot are something that are for they're for our benefit, and we get to enjoy life more with them, then the argument of saying, but I'm good enough, is equivalent to saying, but I earn enough, when there is a pay raise being offered. Wonderful. So you think we convinced them? I think those were all outstanding arguments. You know what, <laughs> going back to the point that I said earlier, I feel like... If I grew up a few zip codes over, I think this discussion may have succeeded in opening up the the thought patterns and maybe get me to consider, to reconsider.
1: I think you did an excellent job. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate you coming on. I need to have you more on the Shema podcast. This is so wonderful having you on here.
0: Well, it's an honor and a privilege. And I'm glad I was invited I'm glad I didn't disappoint.
1: You know, the only reason I don't ask you more is because I see the amount of content you're pushing out. And I, I know you're extremely busy doing that, but I'm going to still just be annoying and, and pester you more to
0: make time for us. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. I did a great podcast today, a partial podcast. It's one of my favorite, my favorite episodes I've ever done. I did today, this morning in the torch center. I I'm so happy with it. I think it's so clever. I have this this new Mishigas. I think it's funny. I think it's hysterical. I had some people tell me, hey, you have responded to my emails. So I say to them, Okay, well what did you send the email to about my email address? Maybe next time I won't do it. You tell me if it's funny. I'll let you know. I'm trying to entertain. You know, you always to, do a good job. I want people to, to have a good time.
1: You did the the ones you did on Yom Kippur that I've listened to this week. I was looking for something to get me past. I just want to get through. I want to, you know, do my atonement, set things straight, clear the slate with the Almighty. It was almost like when you don't feel like doing a workout, I just want to get through. I know I'll feel good when it's over. I was like, but no, I don't want to waste that. Telling you the podcast you did really got me very excited to appreciate and be present. Enjoy that moment.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and with a new lease on life. Thank
1: Thank you, Rabbi. Okay, take care.